Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, July 7th starts now. On today's show, Ben welcomes back good friend of the Ben Jarofsky show and good friend of the city of Chicago, Muez Bawani. Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink. If you want to know it, you can find it right there at ChicagoReader.com. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, well, head on over there to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-B is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this The Machine is Dead Friday, and here's why. <laughs> well, actually, it's over a week. It's Friday. Louise Bawani is uh, joining me, my distinguished guest, for a conversation of the week's news or month's news or whatever else is on our minds. Uh, and uh, so, but I, this, this, I have to start with this discourse here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and uh, I want to give a shout out to Stephen. A good listener with a lot of good ideas, and I'm going to read his uh, email in a little bit, get Moise's response to it. I did not tell Moise I was going to do this, but this is called a curveball thrown at my guests. But he said, you know, it's not, don't feel bad about giving people a little history lesson on this show because, you know, you've been around a long, long time, and you've seen a lot, and you know a lot, and you've some somehow or other managed to retain it, and it's like all in here. So when I see the Sun-Times with this headline, I'm going to show it to Moise because she's not a Sun-Times reader of the newspaper. And it says, after 54 years, case closed. Cook County clerk becomes final office released from federal oversight of jobs and promotion, ending attorney Michael Shaxman's battle to end the patronage hiring that fueled the Democratic machine. Yes, so much to unpack in that sentence, in that headline. Uh, and uh, Michael Shackman was a young crusading lawyer back in 1969, I think it was, when he filed his federal suit. Uh, he was trying to get on the ballot to become a delegate to the uh, Illinois Constitutional Convention. Wow, just think about that, ladies and gentlemen. Illinois didn't have a, a constitution until like, what, the early 70s? And so we elected people to go to Springfield uh, and debate what should be in the constitution. Such illustrious people as Michael Joseph Madigan, a young lawyer from the southwest side, was a delegate. Moise's favorite mayor, Richard M. Daly, was a delegate. I just said that just to make him laugh because <laughs> he's a public school teacher. You can't stand Mayor Daly. 
Uh, and uh, Dawn Clark Natch, liberal icon, she was a delegate as well. The point is, uh, Shackman wanted to be a delegate. He couldn't get elected from Hyde Park in large degree because the um, the incumbent politicians had armies of precinct captains who were paid employees of the city of Chicago. And in order to keep those jobs, in order to get those jobs, they were dispatched to the precincts on election day, knock on doors. Actually, before election day, they'd be knocking on doors all week long. Uh, let's say uh, young Michael Shackman, I'm not saying this happened, but let's say a, a young reformer type who was not supported by anybody put up a sign that said, elect me for alderman. And those machine guys would throw the sign away. Oh, these machine tactics, okay? Uh, and um, there were dozens of them. By the time I arrived in Chicago, there were still vestiges of this. You get these guys, they were always trying to beat Helen Schiller on the North. I'm not a tangent within a tangent. If Helen Schiller was the only vaguely, in the, well, no, Joe Moore, believe it or not. You Roger Parkers, we can't believe this. There was a time when Joe Moore was an independent. That's, but then he made his peace with Daly. Anyway, um, yes. Oh, my God, Moise has Helen Schiller's book. I can't believe it. Helen, the man has your book. So they would send out these, like, behemoths to beat Helen jo I mean, like, where do you get these guys? You know, uh, UFC? These guys were huge. Their necks were thick. <laughs> Only thick necks apply. And they were like, vote, vote for it. And then whoever, whoever, they didn't barely even knew who the candidate was that was running against. Vote for whoever. Just don't vote for, you know, the commie. And their jobs depended on their ability to get people uh, to vote against Helen Schiller. That was just one late example. This, but that's the classic Democratic machine. And Shackman filed the suit, and he was successful in ending the practice of hiring people whose jobs depended on working for the organization. That killed the old machine. But the machine still lives. It lives on as a metaphor. It lives on as like this boogeyman that everybody in Chicago employs to malign their opposition. These are machine tactics. This is a machine person. This is a person backed by the machine. The machine is dead, ladies and gentlemen. The machine that existed when Michael Shackman filed a suit is dead. You do not have hundreds of thousands of patronage workers who are obligated to go door to door to keep their jobs. You have maybe some exempt employees, but that's not enough to, to have a patronage armory. And we saw that with Lori Lightfoot. She didn't have anybody to go door to door. Paul Vallis was begging people to go door to door. He didn't have anybody. He didn't have anybody. Go, he was paying people to go door to door. I saw some of his advertisements. That's pathetic, man. Paying people to go door to door. Because it, if you're really sincere, you're doing it because you believe in it. One of the last conversations I had with Congressman Luis Gutierrez, former Congressman Luis Gutierrez, he was going to come on the show and then he bowed out of the show. Uh, by then, this was a couple of months ago, it was in the midst of the election, and he, he had clearly turned. He had moved to the right, and he was denouncing the Chicago Teachers Union. And he said, it's the new machine. What's the difference between this and the old machine? And Louie, when he came up in 1982, when I first met him, he was a cab driver. He was up against Dan Rasikowski. That was a machine. 
patronage workers, those big those big guys with the necks. That's what Hului was up against. And I'm like, Congressman, if some Chicago, she goes, the Chicago Teachers Union is the new machine, Ben. I'm like, no, they can't fire. Stacey Davis Gates can't fire Moise Bawani if he doesn't go door to door. Moise is a public school teacher. She can't make him go door to door. She can't tell the gym teacher at Moise's school, you got to go knock on doors for, I don't know, Brandon Johnson. No, (laughs) no way. It's Sunday. I want to watch the Bulls. You know, you don't have to go out. You can watch the White Sox. You don't have to go anywhere. If there were teachers who went door to doors because they wanted to do it, it wasn't because their job depended on it. In fact, I know teachers, they call me all the time. I'm not going to put their names out there who cannot stand Stacey Davis Gates. They're still teachers. They show up at the union meetings and they yell at her. Louise has been at some of those meetings. He knows what it's like. Machine is dead, but it lives on, man. So many candidates will call me at election day. I'm up against the machine. What machine? You millennials, man. Come on. You guys don't even know what a machine is. Really? Some guy threw up my, ripped up my signs. Well, okay. That is a machine tactic. Okay. But it's, you know, it's, I don't know. It's hardly a machine. I remember Andres Vasquez took pictures of some guy taking down his sign. Now, Vasquez, give him credit in the 40th Ward. He beat Patrick O'Connor who came from the machine back in the day. Like there were like O'Connor's entire family worked for the park district. I forget where they all work for. I was always meeting someone who was related to O'Connor. It seemed like. So that was the old vestige in the machine. But I mean, even O'Connor, I don't know how many people who had their job dependent on going door to door for Patrick O'Connor. Vasquez kind of mopped the floor with him in that runoff. I mean, it was a joke. And so I don't, I can't think of one all. Rosanna Rodriguez, good friend of this show, 33rd Ward. She was up against the Mel machine. I have that in quotes. But the Mel machine is a, like a skeleton. It's Mel. And you know, so people in the old days, Mel, there were so many people had their, their jobs because of Mel. They had to go door to door. Now, no, no. They'd rather watch the Bulls game. So machine is dead. This lawsuit is over. Uh, it's officially ended. So I guess there are no jurisdictions uh, in, in and around Chicago that have to uh, uh, prove that uh, they're not um, holding, requiring city workers uh, to, uh, or excuse me, employees to uh, go do political work. So I think it's a good thing. I could also make the counter argument Um that patronage was a form of economic development. I can make that argument. And uh, I have it in the past made that argument that when uh, John Stroger, for instance, uh, was given control of jobs by Daly, Mayor Baby Daly, uh, that was a good thing because those are jobs in the Eighth Ward and the South Side that usually get overlooked. That's money going into that neighborhood. Those are city employees who have to live in Chicago, buy a home, pay property taxes. I could make a very strong argument, and I generally do, that it's far better to have that kind of machine 
than opposed to the one that Baby Daily, Richard M. Daly, and Rahm Emanuel created, which was a machine filled with pinstripe patronage, downtown lawyers, downtown accountants whose firms go along. They have the machine-like mentality, the herd-like mentality, like sheep. Whatever Mayor Rahm does, whatever Mayor Daly does, we will follow them. So that kind of machine mentality lives on in the city of Chicago long after the machine itself is dead. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on Louise Bawani, former Aldermanic candidate in the 50th Ward, Chicago public school teacher, passionate follower of politics, avid sports fan. At the end of the show, you're going to hear his extremist, ridiculous, preposterous notions about what the Chicago Bulls uh should do. And let me remind you folks, the views and opinions of my guests do not reflect my views and opinions at all. <laughs> With that, welcome back, Moise. Thanks for having me, Ben. Happy to be here. Thank you for the intro. And yeah, I'm excited at the end to talk about my Build Back Better plan for the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, Biden oh, yeah. All right, my Build Back. <laughs> God, help us all. He's got a name for it. All right, before we get to that, That'll be uh, the icing on the cake. You just got finished with a uh, an aldermanic campaign. Uh, you've been involved in Chicago campaigns, uh, f- I don't know, 10 years at least. You're a millennial, but you've been pretty active. Um, I said the machine is dead, but that the metaphor lives on. The concept of something that, like when you're the underdog, you're up against the machine. And so that lives on. Uh, your thoughts about this? Do you do you agree with me? First of all, that the machine is dead. Yeah, yeah, I hundred percent agree. But I think the kind of the specter of the machine is going to live on for quite some time. You know, one thing I was really kind of enamored by when Mayor Lightfoot won was how effective, you know, the tie-in and the talking points were around Preckwinkle being corrupt, being part of the machine, right? Those, those, I think you know when you make that association, when you talk to everyday folks, you know, it's not, they're not looking at questions around bike lanes. Like they're looking, they love the specifics, but when you talk to them about like, Hey, you know, public safety schools, they're looking for a general overview. But one thing you notice right away that people will, you know, around every single spectrum will, will kind of open their eyes a little bit more about, or, you know, their eyebrows will be raised is corruption or these common concepts of like, you know, this person belongs to the machine. So I think, you know, I, I think it's always going to be around. Uh, well, maybe not always, but I think, you know, it has a few more cycles of people saying machine while at the same time, like you mentioned, um, there's always that consistency of somebody saying, well, this is the new machine, the new machine, the new machine. How many think pieces came out, I think, last year? Uh, and yeah, you know, for example, everybody says the CTU is the new machine. But like, again, you know, Stacey, Stacey Davis Gates is not going to fire my math teacher for not going to knock for Brandon Johnson. <laughs> Like we're, we're true believers, you know, we went out not because we went to, um, you know, 1901 Carol and we're like told y'all better do this. We go out because like we get to see the impact of disinvestment every single day as, you know, as educators. And we get to also like we're teachers, right? Like we have to know this stuff and we have to know what's going on in the city. And we understand that for a very long time, the city has not been going in a direction that's ideal for parents, for students, for CPS families. And that's what's made us true believers. But there'll never be a shortage of people looking to create, like, again, the idea of a machine because it's effective. I still think it's effective, right? I, I think the Lightfoot Preckwinkle 
process around it was was such an important thing because they just kept hitting Tony Preckwinkle with machine, 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 and of course Ed Burke situation too, and the tie-ins with Burke being part of the machine. Mm-hmm. So um, that, along with whoever is the new machine, I'm sure there's a think piece in the process somewhere around, you know, this group is the new machine, so on and so on. We'll see how that gets recycled with more elections on the way. I would say I would make the argument that in American politics today. The closest thing to the machine would be MAGA. And the closest thing to a political boss would be Donald John Trump. You are not permitted to have a political career in the Republican Party unless you uh, bow down to his holiness, the Trumpster. Adam Kinzinger defied Trump, gone, banished. The Republican... uh, party in his neck of the woods in uh, Illinois outlawed him, banished him. Uh, Liz Cheney in Wyoming, Congresswoman, defied Trump, banished, gone. Ron DeSantis, the most pathetic presidential campaign I think I've ever seen. He He's like getting ready to be banished because he's challenged Trump. My argument right now is that MAGA is the new machine. Your thoughts about that? We'll see. Uh, if he wins the primary, then I'm inclined to say you're right. Um, I, I, it's hard to tell with the Republican Party. I think, um, you know, we have to really factor in the culture wars and we have to factor in how much so much of kind of the louder voices on the Republican side are motivated by just you know, like that old joke, owning the lips, right? Like, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, just to own the libs. Um, I think we'll see. I, I think DeSantis, it's been funny, it's been really interesting watching DeSantis kind of be like, um, you know, royalty for such a long time. Like, if anybody's going to stick it to the Dems, right, it's DeSantis. And then as soon as he decides to run for president, now it's like, um, it's it's like a louder group of people are in, are insulting him and are coming after him, right, from the Trump side. So, it, it, I mean, you know, my brother was talking about this to me a few days ago, like the humiliation that Jeb Bush and Mitt Romney went through, that's what he's looking to see if Ron DeSantis has his Mitt Romney moment where he's going to sit down with Trump at dinner and they're going to take a photo of him like he looks like he's being held hostage. Um you know, so we'll see. I mean, again, these are the loudest voices. Twitter isn't real life. These different spaces isn't real life. But if Trump wins again, then that tells you, right? Like, because DeSantis is a real challenge. Um, this isn't the group of other folks like a timid Marco Rubio and some random folks, Ted Cruz. This is a guy who wants to be to the right of Trump, right? This is a guy who um, has a horrifying background, right? Like, he's a guy who laughed at what was going on Uh, at Guantanamo when he was a lawyer, right? Laughed at people being tortured. People have accused him of laughing at folks who have talked about their torture. He's a dangerous guy. He's not, um, you know, he's not where the wind goes. This is who he is. He's he's a bad person who has some real genuine beliefs of uh, of attacking uh, LGBTQIA folks, of of really, you know, destroying, I mean, you know, they've already kind of, you know, obviously in the news with affirmative action, but destroying you know, these systems that have created equity and then also attacking, uh, you know, the very lives of people, right? Being like one of the, I mean, being right on the COVID denier spectrum. So that's a dangerous guy. And we'll see if that substance of danger and also the fact that I feel, you know, the old parts of the Republican Party will coalesce around him more than Trump. 
we'll see. But if Trumpism prevails and he gets into the primary, uh, he gets into the general against uh, Joe Biden, then yeah, you know, you can really make the argument that the Trump thing is is a well-oiled machine. I, I can't see right now. We talk about Trump and DeSantis all the time on this show uh, with, with some of my guests who do, we do national politics. I cannot see DeSantis winning the nomination right now. Uh, I can't see it. His last commercial. I don't know if you've seen it. It is so bizarre. It's it's so weird. It's such a mixed message that he's sending out it's it's an attempt to make him look more conservative than trump on gay issues uh, by showing clips of donald trump supporting gay marriage i think it was and then there's this really twisted weird montage which is like homoeroticism on one level while say denouncing gays on another level it very bizarre uh mixture of images like a brad pitt (laughs) hard to even explain you have to see it ladies and gentlemen to me it was a cry for help of a guy desperately trying to win over the the maggiest of maga people because um his campaign is going and yet his campaign's going down in terms of polls i just saw he raised 20 million dollars so there's 20 million. I guess I shouldn't just overlook that. All right. Moving on from the machine and how MAGA, in my opinion, is a new machine. One of the big news items of the week is that Mayor Brandon Johnson fired, I think it was, or asked uh, four board members to leave and he appointed a new board, new Chicago school board. I know you have some thoughts about this as a school teacher and an activist. So take it away. I mean, I'm excited. You know, there was a kind of a you know, a friend sent me an email uh, yesterday, which has always cracked me up because he's one of those folks. He doesn't live in Chicago anymore. And he sent me an email just like, hey, did you hear about this? And like, sometimes it's downright comical. Like, you know, it'll be like, um, you know, like the teacher's union lands a contract. I'm like, yes, I've, I've heard of this. <laughs> like, <laughs> so he sent me one of those emails like, hey, hope all is well. Did you hear about this? And I'm like, yes, I did hear that we have a brand new board. Um, yeah, it's good. I- I'm really happy because... I've been teaching, I'm going into my seventh year and it is, it's, it's wild, right? Like, you know, I remember, um, and I think someone kind of surmised it, like much of this journey is very similar to like, I think Ben, it was you, right? Like Stacy being kicked out of the meeting with Lightfoot um, during contract negotiations. And now like, you know, Stacy was on the fifth floor, like uh, two weeks ago, right? Like what a contrast or, or the fact that you have Brandon um, or sorry, Mayor Johnson, uh, CEO Martinez, and then, you know, our, our president, Stacey Davis-Gates, together, uh, you know, speaking um, at an event about CPS and the changes and what what different things are in tow for our families and our students that are obviously uh, better than before. Um, so, you know, I, looking at the appointees, like, one, you have a group of people who represent Chicago who are tied to teaching, um, parents, educators, like the new president of the board, was a public school teacher for three years, talking about John Ann Shee from Raise Your Hand, uh, in Chicago for three years and then previously taught in Boston. Uh, these are folks who get not only issues that are the macro issues in education, but they get the micro issues. And more than anything, looking at these folks, they've all had opportunities and chances to talk about how student living situations, family living situations are closely tied to learning outcomes. Um, and that's wild. And that's something that you know excites me uh, you know, thinking deeply as well about, you know, Mary, uh, Mary Faye Hughes joining and like 
the emphasis we've heard from the mayor and the emphasis we've heard from members already who are set to join the Board of Ed around special education and around the needs of our students with disabilities. Um, and hearing, you know, it's refreshing hearing conversations around CTE, career technical education, and then the idea, again, of what is the role of police in our schools uh, versus the role of restorative justice, transformative justice, the idea of schools uh, being really a space for us to de decriminalize and think deeply about students and their needs, um, which, you know, honestly, thinking about my own journey as an educator, how much that's changed me as a person and how I see the world, right? What does it mean to work with someone in crisis? And what does it mean to have not just empathy uh, within you, but also when it reflects policy? So I'm deeply excited. And, you know, we talked about this briefly, but this is not going to be a lame duck, right? Like, I don't think anybody should be sitting around saying that, oh, you know, this is just, uh, uh, this is just a group of people who are going to be holding it until we are at the elected representative school board. Um, and I wanna say two things about this. One, these are people who have been activists around education issues. These are people who have been highlighted in fights uh, when it comes to hunger striking for school, all the way to NTA, all the way to, you know, the mutual aid work doing happening during the pandemic, all the way to special education, all the way to violence within schools. These are people who really understand what's going on in our schools. And I don't expect them in any capacity to be sitting here saying, okay, let's just have some meetings. Uh, go ahead, Jackson Potter, say what you wanna say. Let's go to comments and call it a meeting. No, these are folks who are gonna be aligned with a better vision for our schools. Um, and additionally, this is a big deal, right? What this, what this group is gonna do, I think is, you know, I also hypothesize is gonna connect deeply to who's gonna end up running when we start filling these seats. Uh, and I mean, in every single space, whether it's uh, activists that are, progressive that are on the left or also, you know, what is, as we're always waiting on, what will be the response from the right wing, right? Like I'm very much, we'll talk about them in a little bit, but I'm very much paying attention to Moms for Liberty, like these different groups uh, and how they see Chicago. Chicago is not a monolith. There are definitely some conservative spaces. Uh, there are, you know, charter schools were able to run wild for a bit under certain administrations. So what's gonna be their response and how does this response develop as we see a more aligned um, school board that's just about to come in. And also, you know, of course, one thing I don't want to underestimate and one thing that makes me really happy is uh, Dr. Uh, Todd Breland is staying on too. So I'm excited to see how this shapes up. Well, I um thinking about what you just said uh, at past boards uh, and how they fit into the political spectrum. Uh, and how this is a preparation for a bigger fight that's to come when we uh, have an elected school board. So uh, as Moise is pointing out, uh, this, this board will have about a year or two of existence before we have uh, elections to elect an elected school board. And that's brand new in Chicago. Uh, the mayor's resisted. Mayor Daley, Mayor Rahm, and uh, Mayor Lightfoot resisted uh, having elected school boards for many years. Uh, and then finally, uh, the state passed <laughs> passed uh, the bill uh, over Mayor Lightfoot's objection. So this is kind of a a, a transition in many ways. This this board here, um, I I look at, as I focus on this board. I look at these names, and you're right. These are people from the left, and uh, either they have a, like a, a like a lefty ideology, or they were on the left because that's where you had to be to fight the initiatives that Rom and particularly on special ed 
which was a disaster under Rahm, a complete and utter disaster. So I see Mary Fahey, whose name on this list, a new board member, she was leading the fight or one of the leaders of a fight for special on behalf of special ed students during the Rahm years where it was butted for us, Claypool. I can give the whole history, the horrific uh, history of Rahm and special ed. So these people on the left, and now they're in a different position, Louise. They're mayoral appointees, and traditionally, mayoral appointees have had to follow the mayor's line. And you could say, well, it won't be a problem because... Mayor Johnson is too a lefty or comes Elizabeth Warren Democrat and will champion programs that they would support. But I wonder, the big question I have is the TIF program. TIF program siphons money off of the Chicago public schools, tens of millions of dollars every year. In the past, the Chicago Board of Education, mayoral appointees rolled over and Never resisted. Right now, the Chicago Bears are in heated negotiations with the school districts around Arlington Heights on over property taxes and how much they're going to pay. And those school districts, the same basic fight as TIFFs, those school districts are saying to the Bears, we don't want you to get a break on property taxes, to have a cap on property taxes, protecting the amount you uh, have to pay. We want you to contribute what your property is worth to our funds so our schools stay funded, or we don't have to raise the taxes on everybody else to compensate for the money you're getting. That's a fight that has never happened in the city of Chicago because the school board, the people who were ostensibly in charge, were rubber stamps and puppets of the mayor on the issue of financing. So... I'm what this is the kind of thing I'm watching, Louise. You follow me? I'm watching. Okay, Mo- who's going to control the money? Will the board go ahead with Brandon Johnson if he wants to? I don't know. Allocate money for Lincoln Yards. God help us all, or some other crazy tiff scam. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think part of the reason certain people have been put on the board is to is to be that voice to to fight against kind of what we've seen right with the usage of tiff which always they deploy the right rhetoric and it continues these practices of denying equity like we've seen under different administrations i think i don't think the mayor would make these choices of certain people who one come from activist spaces and organizing spaces and also have a litany of people in the community around them um i, I just I, I think one i think we're gonna get to some moments probably where there will be some discourse around like, hey, some disagreement. But I do think there's a reason why these people are in the positions and it is because they're aligned with the mayor. Uh, I do believe that alignment though is not, you know, whatever the mayor says they're gonna do. I think it's more about what are the things that have been decayed and have hurt our public schools, especially the the long overdue uh, ignoring of, of special education, right? To the extent where the state had to take away uh, oversight in special education from CPS. Uh, I think we're going to see those changes happen. I think because the mayor and the board are aligned. Uh, I don't think this is one of those rubber stamp board of ed- board of educations that are put together because I also believe there's a lot of weight behind these folks that are there. They come from movement spaces. They have folks who have been fighting for the similar fights that the Chicago Teachers Union, that activist groups like Raise Your Hand have been fighting for for years. Um, 
it's still going to be interesting to see how it all shapes out. But, you know, I, I don't expect Brandon to be like, hey, y'all, we need more, we, we need more, um, we need more tips for developments that are now asking the pension fund for money. Uh, Link, I don't think Brent, uh, Mayor Johnson's going to be like, we need more Lincoln Yards everywhere. I don't think that's happening. I would hope not. That would be uh, as big a violation of like the promises that he made when he was running as uh, not reopening the mental health clinics. Uh, this is something to watch, uh, ladies and gentlemen, going forward. The issue of police and schools, Moise raised it. So uh, I'm kind of a, a Troy Loavier uh, position on this one. He came on the show and taught as the head of the Principals Association uh, that he believes each school should make that determination for itself that the local schools know what's best for the schools. If they have a great relationship with the officer-friendly type, uh, then they should be allowed to continue it. So I believe in that. I believe in small-D democracy. However, I do not believe the Board of Ed should be paying for it. I believe the funds for police, if they're in the school, should be coming from the Chicago Police Department. I believe that Chicago uh, school money should go to in-class expenditures. So this will be an interesting uh, – I'm, I'm I'll be watching this one. Do you get what I'm saying? Well, we're like, okay, uh, Mayor Johnson has kind of taken a little bit of the uh, uh, Troy LaRavier position in the last few weeks on this issue, saying it should be up to the local schools. Uh, okay, well, who's going to pay for it then? I say take it out of the police budget, Louise, because I think I may have said this to you in the past. It's like that's sacrosanct. You could pretty much, in fact, you should put everything in the police budget, my opinion. Put absolutely everything in the city of Chicago. Put garbage removal in the police, anything, because there's some aldermen who will vote for anything in the police budget. It's kind of a joke, but not really. Your thoughts about this? Should the schools pay for police in the schools, or should it uh, come out of the police budget? Uh, it should come out of the police budget. Um I also, I think, you know, this is one of those issues and I had a, I had a very nuanced take about policing, you know, cause that was constantly the question asked during the campaign um, that, you know, <laughs> I misquoted a lot. I'm not going to say by whom uh, they know who they are. Um, there's, I think it's important for us to understand there's a culture like, you know, the police are seen by a lot of people in our neighborhoods as like one of the last fashions of a safety net. Right. And like, it, it is, it is one of those things that we joke about it, but you're right. There's people who just throw everything in the police budget, but then there's also like, talk to your neighbors, right? Like, Hey, y'all notice there's like a tire in the middle of the street. Instead of somebody moving it, they're like, just call the police, right? <laughs> oh, there's a bunch of kids hanging out in the alley. Call the police. Uh, there's this going on. Call the police, right? <laughs> like my garbage didn't get picked up. Call the police. Right. Um, I think one, I 100% believe police do not belong in schools. Um, and I've seen that as a teacher for seven years. I've seen young people address that, especially when you go through the process of giving young people the understanding of, you know, what could be replaced, right? Because I do think many of our young people, uh, like all of us, we came from systems where we believe you make a mistake, right? You, you should be punished for it. Uh, rather than there's a process of like sincerely understanding what you did, uh, making it right with people and then growing from it, right? Like experience, like, it's so interesting that I grew up in a world where people said mistakes are the best way to learn. But then when you made a mistake, things came down heavy handed on. You, right. And just kind of using that as a little bit of a, of a fulcrum, not like a fitting for each situation. But I, I do, 
I do like when you look at the data around the schools that have removed police, it's mostly been neighborhoods that are well resourced, right? Again, tying to the racism that has existed in our city, the inequity that's uh, situated. And when I was observing a lot of the LSC meetings during the height of the SRO removal, like you did see schools that ended up keeping, for them, there was this genuine idea of like safety of the neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. What happens if gang issues spill into the school? What happens if this spills in? Or the presence of multiple gangs, as one member mentioned at a school, right, within this element that they felt the cops were needed. Uh, but you, when you did push back against certain LSC members about, hey, you know, there is violence interruption. There is the idea of like, does the school need additional funding or the idea of a blighted neighborhood? They kind of understood. They're like, yeah, you know, if conditions were better, if people were employed, if people had their needs met, then there is a world that's possible where we don't have to, you know, believe in trauma. We can we can do treatment, right? Like as Rosanna would say. Um, I, I do, I understand Brandon's idea of letting LSCs decide because these are people who are rooted in the community and understand this. But I do think that, you know, when we look at our young people and we look at what their needs are and what they're facing, I don't think anybody can deny that when you really look at it, how are you gonna consistently threaten young people with the idea of criminalization, the idea of policing, the ideas of jail? That's not healthy. Right. Like, I, I think it's so interesting that in my seventh year, when people ask me and I'll have a student teacher this year um, and, you know, their concerns, uh, a lot of student teacher concerns are usually about classroom management. I'm like, if you treat the kids with a modicum of respect and you like are really, really, really about like helping them understand when they make a mistake, not like, oh, it's OK, everything is great. Everything is fine. No, like we we create harm, but we also deserve to know when we create harm and we also deserve to make it right. The kids get it. They're awesome. I, I think we have to work towards the future, but I also think there's certain things that need to be highlighted. One, what does it mean when a lot of the schools that have kept the police have come from traditionally disinvested areas or highly, you know, policed areas? And then two, you know, kind of the revelation that some people are studying right now that schools that have released two police officers have gotten a position meant to help with the safety inside the school or the well-being of students, while schools that remove one have it right like we actually need a structural like solution to this because i don't i don't i think it's i think it is really 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 not not a choice and in any capacity not fair that you're going to remove people and not give us these positions right like and i also i mean that goes along with the idea of the horrific numbers in cps of students to social workers schools that don't have restorative justice coordinators, the idea that CPS has been feeding us this nonsense for decades, that librarians don't matter, that more adults or in like more programs, more mentoring is not that big of a deal. All of this, everything a neighborhood needs, you see it play out in the school, right? Opportunities, a future, someone who cares about you. Those are things that uplift neighborhoods and those are things that uplift schools. But we've been the zero sum game of like, you're going to get police or nothing. And then when you when you talk to people who aren't, you know, like who haven't gone through the journey I've gone through or your understanding of the police, they're going to be like, well, it's two positions or nothing right? or one position or nothing. Like you're not giving people an option. And I think that process needs to happen. Yeah. No, that you're. Uh, <laughs> That's an old story uh, from about two years ago, I think it was. It was one of the most absurdest uh, choices that I think it was Mayor Lightfoot 
when this issue uh, hit the was on the was big time news in Chicago. The notion, all right, well, you can get rid of your, uh, <laughs> you can get rid of your uh, uh, police, but we're taking the money that they were allocated. You're not getting anything in exchange, and that's that's what alerted me to the larger issue of who's paying for the police. So I'm like, wait a minute, we're going to give up two employees in a school, uh, and nothing for it. Like we're not, we can't trade them in for two social workers, a counselor, a librarian. Nope. Can't do it. It's either the police or nothing. <laughs> that see, okay, that's when schools are political entities. So this gets into the whole issue of school politics and schools. Uh, and for the longest time, this one would crack me up. Mayor Lightfoot and Mayor Rahm. It was really Mayor Rahm would, uh, and Lori would do it too. Mayor Lori Lightfoot would do it too. We don't want to make politicize our schools. And then the like you'd be reading it in the editorials of the <laughs> Tribune. We cannot allow politics to overtake our schools. I'm like, are you kidding me? They're political entities. They're controlled by the mayor to make the mayor look good, whoever the mayor is. So it's like when Mayor Rahm was the mayor, he would have press conferences in libraries of schools where the librarian had been fired. So the library became a backdrop for Rahm to have a press conference. We need a book to really accentuate for the public that we're in a school. So we'll go to the library, right? There's no librarian. Effectively, it's a non-existent library. It exists only for your backdrop. So, yeah, you're right. This is traditionally how politics have played uh, in the public schools of Chicago. This is how Chicago public schools have been used by politicians. I think this will change. Oh, God, I hate saying there's going to be actual change in Chicago. The jaded journalism is can't. Bring it to, but I do believe this will change. It'll definitely change when we get elected school board, because I would hope that. Um, well, first of all, I would hope uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson would not do something as uh, dumb as Mayor Rahm did, firing all the librarians. But uh, if he were to do something that dumb, I would really hope that these uh, nominees, even though he was the one who appointed them. Louise would not just follow him off the cliff like MAGA follows Trump. I would really hope that's the case. I believe it. I, I do. I, I genuinely believe that we're going to have a really healthy balance and it's just going to hopefully continue to get more balanced as, as we get into the elected spaces. Right. And, and a hundred percent agree with you. I mean, I never understood people who say schools shouldn't be politicized. Like, you know, we got kids who are unhoused. We have 20,000 unhoused uh, young people in Chicago. We have, you know, meals that are provided by Aramark that have traditionally been awful. Like I remember Tim Megan's fight around these meals. We have, um, you know, we have schools that because they don't have enough kids, they're cut from programs. And we see a litany of talented young people not get a chance to find what works for them in the school. Schools are always political, right? Like I remember uh, Vallis making a comment about how we've made schools political. Like, dude, you you removed a book because you got scared, right? I think that was your article in 96, yeah. right? Well, I forgot the book you removed, but like, come on, man. Um, coffee will make you black. Coffee will make, yeah. And I'm just like, all right, you know, the the things our kids learn, the stuff that's omitted from our curriculums, that's political. Mm. So it's a lot for us to like have this debate around conjecture, but let's not think for one second that a district that serves 90% of black and brown students hasn't hasn't fallen to the whims of people who literally their job is sometimes to decide who eats, sometimes to decide what neighborhoods get what. Um, 
yeah, no, I, I don't buy into that. I, I'm very excited about this school board. I'm excited of the fact that these are folks who have fought, uh, fought for special education, fought for the dignity of students and families in CPS. And I'm excited about a future where we do have some more, we have a lot more democracy um, in an institution that's deeply meaningful to everybody in Chicago. All right, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Uh, and uh, I'm going to read this uh, email I got from uh, Stephen Yoshida, who uh, I want to thank you very much for uh, sending it to me and get your response to this because it kind of ties into something that you were mentioning before we went on the air uh, about the state of the Democratic Party. Uh, and uh, I was going to talk about Mayor uh, Johnson's transition report, but we covered many of the same issues when we talked about the school board. So let's just I would love to get your thoughts about this letter I got. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen, for sending to it. And it alludes to a conversation I had last week uh, with uh, uh, Andrew Ellison, uh, who is this brilliant uh, political strategist. Um, he, he lives in Indiana, but he's worked in Michigan and follows national politics obsessively. I call him the baby Kornacki because I think he's as good as Steve Kornacki. He knows his stuff inside out. And uh, so anyway, uh, we got into the issue of Z's and millennials being outside the political structure, if you will. They're not voting because uh, they have a nihilistic viewpoint. And uh, here's Stephen's response. Nihilism is big here, but among plugged in millennials and the Z's listening to their commentary, it's less a factor than, say, among the many who don't vote. Playing into both camps' mindset is the memory of Barack Obama's betrayal of his values branding in the wake of the 2008 recession fraud pandemic uh, that and then more deeply his perception as a go along corporate hack. A common refrain among the movement and rhetoric coming out of Occupy Wall Street was and is still today. Banks got bailed out and we got sold out. To be more clear, Biden is and will remain unpopular because young people see his as a faithful and trust steward of corporate exploitation, and he does very little to disabuse young people of that notion. A great example is the rail strike. He went really hard on organized labor to avert a work stoppage. And while the unions eventually got what they wanted for the most part, still wasn't a great deal with one day of PTO. The big headline that stuck with young people paying attention was Biden used some of his more draconian anti-union powers to stifle the power and leverage of organization. It was of organized labor. It was essentially the same template as is executed under Obama. Mainline Dems forming a backstop against the consequences of years of corporate malfeasance at the expense of the little guy. The unions are forced along with the long dick of federal law back to work under terrible conditions. So it's not so much nihilism that keeps young people chilly on Biden. It's a life affirming belief that the role of government is to form a bulwark against exploitative excess and the empirical evidence of Biden not acting on those beliefs. Your thoughts, Moise? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I I am really, really, really hazy about 2024. I think there's, I mean, you know, for my age group uh, and some of the young people I teach, you know, we were, we had, of course, a mayoral election and, you know, had a chance to like catch up with a lot of my alumni during the runoff. And you know, they a lot of the policies of Brandon really meant a lot to them, but there was always, you know, this moment of like, ah, is this really going to happen? <laughs> I remember like one of my young folks, one of my young people were saying that, like, is this really going to happen? You know, Mr. Wani, is this going to happen? And I'm like, 
I think, you know, one of the lessons learned from kind of the Obama era is, and I know everybody's popularized is, is that once somebody wins, we don't, we don't stop with the pressure, you know? And that was something that I think everybody agrees that when Obama won, that people were just like, cool, mission accomplished, right? And that's kind of the learnings you hear people talking about now with uh, the mayor's victory. And also, like, you have to appreciate the mayor's been saying this for quite some time. He expects to be pushed. He expects to be a presence of people holding, uh, holding accountability. Um, I think with, with young folks, with people my age, I think the thing that's kind of dominated the conversation lately is, you know, we all thought we were going to get our student loans wiped away. Um, and I think as things like this happen, like, I, I mean, I remember the democratic party, cause we all get those emails, right? Like movies help us put, help us bring back Roe versus Wade. And it's like, yeah, man, it's, it's, it, it hasn't happened. Like it hasn't happened. Loans haven't been wiped out. This hasn't happened. That hasn't happened. I think one of the few things that I'm clinging on to is the reaction and the coalescing that will probably happen um, once we realize what we're up against, right? Like, I, I think the idea of, of a return of Trump, the idea of DeSantis winning might jolt people again into a position of like, uh, like, here's how it plays out, right? The Democratic Party makes a bunch of promises like, no, we've changed. We're going to change. We're going to be better. Uh, and people are going to get those promises. Maybe student loan promise 2.0. Maybe, uh, you know, this time we'll actually take uh, bodily autonomy, like, to the, you know, again, to another battle, uh, affirmative action, so on and so on. Um, and then a mixture of just a lot of, a lot of, a lot of content around the idea of, like, do you want Trump back? Do you want DeSantis back? But I do believe, like, especially amongst the young people that I, that I communicate with and also just everything we read about, that at some point that message is going to tire and people are going to be like, well, I mean, like we kind of discussed earlier, right? What does it kind of mean to win? And what does it mean when you've won to lead? Uh, I think at some point people are going to maybe make the association that winning doesn't mean anything anymore. That maybe we're better, we're better off fighting uh, when we've lost, right? For people to recognize. But then you get into this full idea of like, we're talking about the lives of people. Right. Even folks were like, you know, I used to have friends who'd be like, man, I hope Trump wins. So the Democratic Party gets it. But it's like you realize if Trump wins, how much of a horror that's going to be for folks. And I also start noticing people mad about the harm reduction discussions. Right. And that's why, like, this is the haziest anything has been to me. Like, I thought, you know, OK, if Biden slightly changes uh, like student loans, right? Or he, or we have a better healthcare approach. Something that means a lot to people, we might have it locked up for at least four more years, but it hasn't been that way. And the popularity keeps dipping and the right is revved up. And, you know, like my dad made a comment to me last year that I always sit with, and people have also popularized this. When the Republicans win, they take a chainsaw to everything. <laughs> Nothing stops them, right? Nothing stops them. Yeah. And it's like we and then when Joe Biden wins, he's like, hey, everybody, the parliamentarian said we can't do this. Yeah. Like, you know, and it, and it's it's that type of stuff that like especially young people are so cognizant, especially young organizers and young activists in spaces around environmental environmental justice. Right. They just realize when they're being played, when they're being played with. Uh, meanwhile, like folks in my generation, just, you know, we've kind of especially now seeing so many folks who are my age just being like, you know, that's just the way it is. Right. Like we've, some of us have kind of lost that fight. Like we're willing to accept, not accept it locally, but nationally we're kind of like, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, I, um, 
when I was reading uh, Stephen's uh, email and listening to you, I, I had this thought. I could. I have a response to, like when you talk about the student loans, that was a bag of six that abolished student loans. The student loan program cannot pass through Congress because Republican Party would oppose it. It's. I, I say this over and over again. The Democrats are not playing on a basketball court, shooting baskets by themselves. There's other. There's another team on the court playing defense against them and the <laughs> hacking the hell out of them when they uh, go to the drive to the hoop and the fouls aren't being called. It's a different game. And I say it and say it and say it. And I realize it doesn't matter to a certain degree to younger people. Like they don't buy into the notion that their Donald Trump represents a deep existential threat to American democracy. That's a boomer thought. Like that's a, a liberal boomer thought. And so I could talk about the existential threat of, of Donald Trump, the attempted coup. Millennials and Z's have lived through an attempted coup, Moise, in your lifetime. Okay. The overwhelming majority don't seem to view that as a great threat. It's not going to be something that rallies them to vote. It's, it's more like, well, you didn't get, I don't know. You, you said where well, I was going to have my student loan uh, wiped away, and now it's not wiped away. And I can go, but that's because the MAGA 6 ruled against it. And look, nah, nah. <laughs> yeah, Somehow others, the Democrats fault. Go ahead. No, it doesn't matter. Right. Like, I mean, if you've been long, if you've been alive long enough, like I came, you know, I used to love and I still I mean, I'm an English teacher now, but I love social studies and social science. You know, I came in as a social studies teacher and I remember like I, I used to like I used to like we did a mock debate in my seventh grade class, I think, where I was like up there defending Al Gore. Right. Like I love politics. <laughs> um, but I remember when Obama had everything right. Like he had the Senate, he had the House and nothing happened. Right. And again, yeah, Joe Lieber. Right. Like we can. Uh, but like brass taxes without getting into the nuances, because people ain't nobody got time for that anymore. Right. Like I love that meme where somebody like somebody has a long post and someone will follow up, be like, I'm not reading all of this. Congratulations. Or I'm sorry for your loss. <laughs> I'll just summarize it. But like, again, the Republicans, when they win, whether they win just the House, whether they win the presidency, whether they got Senate chainsaw 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 democrats well you know the parliamentarian oh the republican six oh uh, you know, and like and like bernie sanders talked about the executive orders we can do right like the chances for biden to really ramp it up and like i hate sports analogies to politics because we're talking about people's lives but it's like the republicans they drafted they drafted well they drafted an entire supreme court now that runs the country Right. And the Democrats have just been like, let me trade for aging veterans again and again and again <laughs> and try to win a title. Right. Like, uh, um, let me let me go again. Let me bring Joe Biden out of retirement, try to win a title. And I did. Oh my like, God. what did we give up? Right. What did we give up? And I just it's it's wild to me. And I'm struggling. Yeah. I'm really struggling because, like, again, we're in the middle of like these absurd culture wars that, you know, you and I have talked about that not absurd, pardon me, but these very serious culture wars that 
have really rippled through every single community, right? And I can speak from some of these as, as a Muslim and what I'm noticing in my community, which is like really, really not the side I'm on, but it, it seems to be the game plan everywhere, right? The game plan with mothers, with different religious groups, with different, with our young people too, right? Like, and it, we talk about this being rooted in, you know, the anti-PC stuff from like a decade ago, right? Um, that and like looking at the idea, like the Times had that editorial around, you know, Latine uh, folks who identify as Latines approving, you know, Trump's approach to the economy, right? Like I keep thinking about, I think it was Toni Morrison who said the idea of like, you know, situating everybody into the role of taxpayer rather than people was meant to turn folks against the public good, right? She had this phenomenal write-up. And we're starting to see people who are turning against the public good, the things that used to power us, right? Like it was a strong political approach to say, think about your fellow man. And now we're heading into this where somebody's like, yeah, okay, we'll build a wall, right? Like that's the response to these things now. Um, a lot of this stuff is concerning. And I, I think like people deserve to have something that reinforces their belief in you. Mm -hmm. They deserve to see policies pushed through. They deserve to see someone say, yeah, I'm going to use executive orders, right? They deserve to see that level of fight and I think when they don't see it, especially younger people who are just like, you know, my nephews have pointed out to me like, okay, I'm glad he's one, you know, I'm glad that he's not tweeting like Joe Biden is not tweeting out loud, but like they, nothing has changed for the environment because that's what they care about, right? Nothing has changed in regards to the, the hoarding of wealth, especially during the early stages of COVID. Now you have like even more of an obscene gap. And, and if young people are this attuned and they're, absorbing content like this that should be concerning to the democratic party but again this is a party that has taken black women for granted it's a party that has taken young people for granted and that hasn't changed that is a great riff i can't really rebut it i mean i could think of something to rebut it with but nah i'm gonna let it stand because yeah, you're kind of speaking to me as well. I get very, very frustrated with the Democratic Party. Uh, though I will remind people, I do take very seriously the existential threat that Donald Trump and fascism uh, of MAGA is making. And ultimately, I think this election will not come down to how Brandon Johnson won, where young people showed up. We have young people showing up at a, like a higher rate in the uh, runoff against uh, Paul Vallis, and that helped. Uh, that was the second most important thing. The first thing being 80% black vote uh, that uh, resulted in Brandon's victory. I do not think that Dems, Biden, uh, Harris ticket will win as a result. They'll win because they get suburban voters who are more mainstream to vote for them because they despise Trump's view on abortion, let's say, or his criminal past or his ranting on social media. So I think your point is uh, well taken. That's where the Democrats have decided to go. They're not going to run a, uh, a Brandon Johnson campaign. They're going to run a Paul Vallis campaign. That help us all. All right. Uh, let's uh, close with a little Bulls talk uh, in his own way. Um, he's kind of teased where he's going to go with that riff. Uh, linking people like me and my belief uh, to the dinosaurs that run the Democratic Party. I will point out uh, that I am a diehard Chicago Bulls fan. Uh, I have been a Bulls fan since 1966. I, I, I feel I need help on this front on many levels. I admit it. I acknowledge it. Uh, I, as we speak, I'm wearing a Bulls hat and a Bulls skirt. 
I put the shirt on just to send a message to Muiz. Uh, Muiz contends he's a Bulls fan, but he's not really a Bulls fan. He's more like a front runner type guy, but he has a theory. Uh, he does follow basketball. I got to give him that much. Uh, and uh, so I will now, the floor is yours as to your great idea about what my beloved Bulls should do. Take it away. Um, I wanna, I'm speaking to you, Chicago fans. I'm going to go ahead and, even though Ben's on my screen, and you know Ben's included, but I'm speaking to you, Chicago fans, and I'm asking you very directly, you deserve better. You deserve better than the nonsense that this city puts up with. Uh, you deserve better than, I'm not even a White Sox fan, but you deserve better than them squandering all these incredible players that they had. Uh, you deserve better than a franchise that had the greatest player of all time, uh, won six titles, and hasn't done anything since. You de deserve better than a bunch of doofuses walking around your city with a mustache and a Bears uh, vest saying, the Bears, the coach, and they weren't even alive in 85. <laughs> Why does this city settle for mediocrity? This is Chicago. This is Chicago, right? This is, you know, where house music is born. This is the city that all the other cities envy, right? This is Mayor Brandon Johnson's city. This is the city of the mighty Chicago Teachers Union. This is the city of resistance. And here we are content with cheering for, you know, a team that might make, you know, the plan. So, you know, and, and to folks who might be like, yo, Moise, you know, you're speaking facts, but, you know, you're kind of on the left. Let me go ahead and take a second and say, let me become a centrist Bulls fan right now. And let me introduce the Build Back Better plan in my dynamic. <laughs> let's blow it up. Trade everybody. Let's rebuild. I know this is not new. But let's rebuild. Listen, Miami, if they don't get Damian Lillard, I think they want Lillard. Get rid of Zach Levine. Go get some assets. Go get some of the white guys who can shoot. I hope that doesn't get called out for reverse racism because I'm talking about Tyler Harrow and Duncan Robinson. So please don't get mad at home, but go get those guys, right? Let DeMar be the black hole of the basketball. Let's spread the court out. Let people hit threes, send Vooch to the G league. I'm kidding. Trade him too. I don't think you can cause you re-signed him. Listen, there's enough people on this team that we can trade away some pieces and maybe be more competitive. But here's the thing, start accumulating assets, get draft picks, start building this team through the draft. Like, let's stop, let's stop, like, this idea of a weird big three. Let's just get some younger folks, right? Like, Big might not like it, but Detroit's roster, exciting. Orlando's roster, exciting. Oh, yeah. Young people, young <laughs> yeah. people running the court, exciting. Oh, well, like, God. come on, man, we went through a draft without a pick. What are we doing? We're just we had a second-round pick. We had a second-round pick? Great. Yeah. <laughs> Right, like, we'll see. The season opens tonight, the summer league. Go on. We'll see. Listen, it's just what are we doing? What are we doing? Why are we going through this stuff? Right, and we we got lucky. A lot of people in the city don't like really need to remember that Derrick Rose first overall pick was not supposed to happen. That was a miracle, right? Much like the Blackhawks getting Connor Bedard. Like this stuff is not going to fall into your lap. But I keep thinking, one, why is this team averse to three point shots? Why is this team averse to like, why is this team so hell bent on like putting a Rondo, Dwayne Wade, Jimmy Butler roster every single time together? It doesn't work. Granted, I want to say this, should never let Jimmy Butler go, but Ben's going to get mad because he's like, none of you wanted Jimmy Butler. So Yeah, you did want him to go. I, I, well, I don't know, literally you, I didn't know you back then, but finish your, are you, Listen, I, 
I love I interrupt you. And I'll never forget when he went to Minnesota, took everybody who was third string, played the first string, and then just whooped everybody. That article was incredible. Yeah, one he, practice. It happened in a practice. Right. That was awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mean, okay. I'm sitting here talking about now. What what do people really think? Right. Like, okay, great. Kobe's back. Uh, I hope they get Io back too. Um, you know, they they signed. Uh, they signed someone from the Bucks, Carter, who you know is a good fit. Pat Bev is gone. Uh, they signed Tory Craig, but like, what do people really expect, right? And like, let me put it this way: Ben might not like it. Like it. Why is Billy Donovan here? Like, what is what is what is Billy Donovan's job here? Like, and what is going to change fundamentally this year? I think again, again, the Bulls might get lucky to get in a play-in, but we have a chance. We have a chance right now. There's a bunch of teams who are sitting in the fringe, being like. As you can see through the Damian Lillard hunt that want, you know, a guy like Zach Levine, there might be folks who want DeMar DeRozan. You get the right package. Like we saw one on Twitter, which I don't think is feasible, where it's like, you know, Miami giving you draft picks, Duncan Robinson, Tyler Harrow, make the deal, right? DeMar can be ball dominant. I sent that to you. I think I was the one who sent that to you. I just want to credit. I was the one who sent you that trade proposal. I don't know. I got to look through my text messages. Okay. That's the way around there. Because you, because you know, knowing Ben, everybody, Ben is like, hey, what if we bring Noah back? And I'm like, from what? From where? Right? This is these are the things that Ben Jarofsky believes in. He's like, what if I give Derek Rose my legs? And I'm like, Ben, I don't think it's possible. Right? By the way, I'm heartless. Bring Noah back. I mean, this is what I have to do with uh, him. Um, but like, okay. Uh, uh, you, have you run out of steam yet? Yes. Okay. Never. For over a year now, I've known this guy. Every now, I, I get excited. Though there's like about thirty people in my life that I obsessively text about the Bulls, or I also do Instagram things. So I'm, you know, I got a lot. I'm really an obsessive person. I do need help on this front. And one of them is Moise. And whenever I do, it comes back, blow it up. <laughs> Stay with me, everybody. Blow it up. And, you know, folks, I'm just going to tell you right now. Moise alluded to the Lillard trades. Let me just help you out. Some of you don't follow. So you get to see the inconsistencies and the mixed messages in his deliverance there. So the Miami Heat are pursuing Damian Lillard, who's a great guard. is about age 33, I want to say. Plays for Portland Trailblazers. Decided he will never win a championship at Portland. And he still has like three, at least three good years left. He wants to win a championship. He wants to go to Miami. So Miami is trying to trade whoever, put whatever it can to get Damian Lillard. But they're not doing it as though uh, Moise were running the team and they were just blowing it up so that they could be bad, so they could just like look forward to draft choices for the next 20 years. Uh, no, they're doing it to have a better team this year. They can win a championship. So they're trying to walk this thin line where they trade. They have enough to trade to get Portland to give up Damian Lillard, but they retain enough good players so that it means something that Damian Lillard's addition to that team will result in a championship. The Moise Bawani view of the Chicago Bulls is to take a great player like Zach Levine and trade him, And then you have nothing. <laughs> and so Ben, who's got like 30 years, at least on Moise, I don't have a lot of life left. If I'm going to win my champion, I got to go through another rebuild. <laughs> one thing for young Moise, he's 
he's, he's looking forward to like a hundred years more. I can live through another rebuild. I can't. No, I've lived through three rebuilds in the 21st century. My friends, the White Sox are about to go on another one. The Bears are continually on a rebuild. All I have are rebuilds. No more rebuilds. I'll take a play-in team over a rebuild any time. And I'll tell you one last thing, folks. You watch. When the Bulls come together and it happens, oh, my God, Mr. Bawani will be singing a different song. Hey, Ben, can you get me some tickets for that game? Hey, Ben, let's go watch the Bulls game. He'll be wearing a little Bulls shirt, a little Bulls hat. <laughs> He'll take off his I love Miami hat and his little Laker coat. It'll be a whole different thing. So, yeah, no more rebuilds, ladies and gentlemen. Let's. Go for the win now. We got the big three. We got some shooters. <laughs> I know I never advocated for being joking Noah back, although it is a pretty funny line. All right. You had your say. I had my say. We'll close it down right now. Thank you so much for being such a good sport and putting up with me, sort of making up positions for you on the Bulls, which I will continue to do. And uh, enjoy your summer off. You're not doing summer school, correct? No, no, I'm chilling. Just organizing around the community, running around, being helpful wherever I can. We do have an IPO softball league. Let's go 50th Ward. First few games finished yesterday. I'm terrified of Oscar Sanchez in the 10th Ward. They, like, put up 15 on the uh, beloved 12th Ward uh, IPO. And it's dangerous, you know. But, I mean, for me, a championship is the equivalent of just beating the 33rd Ward and a certain older woman there. Uh, but, yeah, IPO softball. Let's get it. Well, the uh, it's a good thing you don't run the 50th Ward uh, IPO team because it'd be a constant rebuild. You'd be trading players to the 10th Ward for assets. Well, uh, I'm about to trade Matt right now. Matt's, uh, <laughs> Matt's about to go to the 48th Ward. I'm sorry, 46th. Angela's going to love him. Oh, 46, not the 40. Uh, it's going to the 40th Ward with the rest of those precincts. I shouldn't have that. All right. Louise, I want to thank you very much. Uh, outstanding job as always. Uh, and I want to thank producer Chris. Uh, great job all week. I think Louise and Matt Ginsburg will agree with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Have a great weekend, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more, all for free at chicagoreader.com. Follow the Ben Jarofsky show on Instagram at Benny J show and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky podcast on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. wondered how to say good morning in Italian or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.